Storymakers. I'm Angie Powers. I'm Elizabeth Stark. And, and this, this is Storymakers Story Show. And today on Storymakers, we return from a two-week hiatus. Yes, the first week, Angie was sick. Incredibly sick. The second week, we were listening. And so we wanted to return today to discuss a couple of important ideas in this time of national reflection. And action. Uh, and those would be empathy and reading. Yeah. The role of the reader. Or how to read the room. <laughs> or just how to read. There you go. But first, what are you working on? Right now I'm working on taxes. Ooh, that's sexy. <laughs> how about you? Um, yeah, I'm kind of working on like not losing my mind. Mm -hmm. Um yeah, like the layers of things, some of which are very exciting. Some of the things that have been going down nationally are very exciting, but um, but 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 because they're dovetailing with pandemic, I'm feeling confused about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, yeah. So, so how is that what you're working on? Well, I think it's just that it's really hard. Been really hard for me to work. So okay. Yeah. Um, and I'm also waiting for notes and stuff. So I'm just you know. In my own little world, I'm just constantly trying to figure out how to balance um, forward movement and the state of the world. That sounds very vague. It is kind of vague. It's super vague. But I yeah. think it's something everybody's trying to balance. Yeah. And one of the reasons uh, we wanted to talk about the two uh, topics for today, the empathy and reading... Uh, it's because both of those intersect with what's going on on mm. a much larger level. We really took some time to think about what does a story writing show have to say? Story making. Because we have story filmmakers and right. right. But yes, but what but do what, we what do we have yeah, to say? And is it um, And we're, you know, also two white women talking about story. Queer white women. What do we have to say? <laughs> So there you go. So there it is. So you wanted to talk about reading, and I actually had the interest in discussing empathy. I feel like you've been talking about different things, and I keep saying that would be a good topic, and I feel like reading was one <laughs> and empathy was another. Okay. Well, just to kick off, I think one of the things that I is increasingly true, I well, first, let me just contextualize myself. I am not on social media. Yeah, I feel jealous of you. <laughs> I am completely not on social media. Yeah. And so for me, I am... And not only are you not on social media, you're not even really getting to be social at all. At all. You have no social outlet, media or otherwise. But I do pay attention to the news, but and I also... you walk around the block. <laughs> and I walk around the block. But I pay attention to the news and I select the sources from which I feel like, okay, I... I I have to pick someone to trust in terms of writing about the story and then the, the places that I choose to consume my information from. Yeah. And part of the reason I left social media was because it's not in any way thoughtfully curated, yeah. nor does it actually speak to a, a, a discourse like and having an actual conversation with people it tends to be 
people speaking at each other. Mm -hmm. So I'd rather read an opinion page from someone I didn't agree with than get some weird videos shoved into my timeline. It's also really performative, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. that's sort of why people speak at each other, because it doesn't feel like a conversation. I mean, at its finest, it can be. There are... You know, and there is that real human desire to connect with people. I mean, there are people I really love who, all of whom could not possibly be in my daily life because, you know, the three who are in my daily life plus dog take up all the room. (laughs) And in all fairness, I do catch some of the um, social media through you, but I get sort of an oral history. (laughs) I get an oral history of the social media that happened. Right. The reason I wanted to start with that was because. Even in that context, I am not immune from being presented with things that are not necessarily accurate and not necessarily um, well thought out, but they are hugely emotional. And I think that when we talk about being a reader, Mm. when we talk about empathy in these two moments, um, for me, being a reader is twofold. And one is being able to read the context in which something is being presented to you. So again, that's why I don't do social media much. But as a thoughtful consumer of media, because we all are, yeah. what am I choosing? Mm-hmm. What am I choosing right. at any given moment? Right. Who are the resources what are I the, trust? And what are the standards of that source? What, are what are they, the standards what, to, to what source? standard do they hold themselves? And so I, I think what I want to do is encourage our listeners, this is my encouragement number one, to really reflect on where you choose to get your information. Um, there's no, well, I was going to say there's no right or wrong, but really there is. Um, <laughs> but as, as I used to say to my community college students, I would say, I'm not teaching you how to think. I'm not, I don't, I'm not trying to teach you how to think like me. I'm trying to teach you how to think critically, so then you'll agree with me. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess what I mean is is that it is, you know, I, as soon as I started down that path, I was like, Breitbart is never going to be the right <laughs> answer. Right. It isn't, because it's definitely uh, does not hold itself to any kind of journalistic standards. In the same way that we don't read the weekly world news for real events that are happening we shouldn't be looking at deeply um, propaganda organs. What right. we should be doing is looking at uh, a range of news sources that ostensibly attempt to achieve that journalistic standard. All right, I want to spin this off in a slight in a direction that I think is like is tangential but extremely relevant, especially to storymakers. Great, which is that. One of the powers of narrative is that extremely specific individual stories Mm -hmm. carry tremendous resonance and that they can become, if not universal, they can become like um, stories we can all empathize with, Mm -hmm. hence hence in part the topic of empathy, Um, stories we can see ourselves in even when we're not necessarily alike Mm -hmm. with the, the protagonists or whatever. And and it, and I just I guess I just want to sort of throw that piece in there as we're looking at critical, um, critical reading and social media, and for example, you know the the excruciating 
death, uh, murder of George Floyd is, 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 is an interesting moment because it's both incredibly specific, right? Where, and that, and there's sort of these memes going around and saying, you know, when he called out for his mama, like all mamas were called on, right? Like mm-hmm. we're, we're heading out there to answer that call. And even somebody was writing about, you know, when you were in the grocery store and you hear someone saying mom and everybody's turning around, like, is that my kid? So there's sort of that, that kind of response. And at the same time, there's a pattern, right? There's a p- political pattern that's being built, that's being responded to, right? There's the individual story that is so powerful and impactful and terrible. And then there's the context in mm-hmm. which this story took place right. and in which this event took place. This, and so, um, and which is being addressed by massive worldwide protest. And I guess I just, I want us in, in thinking about critical reading, I mm-hmm. want us to think about as writers and readers, both the incredible power of individual stories and the ways in which our own social media anecdotes don't necessarily hold up as their own piece of evidence. You know, so so that like, for example, I'm hearing these people like stories of, you know, like white men saying, I've never experienced racism in this context. <laughs> and it's like, well, that's not, not helpful surprising. as an insight into whether there's racism here. And it's not surprising, right? <laughs> That's a fundamental misunderstanding of so many things. <laughs> like everything. Or like <laughs> why you had to chime in. Like <laughs> this wasn't necessarily the time we needed to hear from you. <laughs> right. So, so, but so I guess what, so I guess, but as writers, you know, it's our power to bring forth an individual story and to let people connect with it. Right to connect to an individual story that is not mm-hmm. necessarily your own, and to be able to, as readers, I think it's our superpower. I mean, readers are shown to be more empathetic because, and right. it's our superpower to connect to an individual story. And so, the vital importance of that, as against letting an individual experience become itself a piece of evidence, like you know, I've never experienced racism here. So yes, I mean, all of that is true, and I'm also you know struck by the fact that really a lot of nonfiction uses the tool of specificity to mm-hmm. highlight these larger trends, right? So you see these things. Um, you cannot possibly fathom what it means for six million people to be killed, right? But you read the one story of the one family that did this one thing in the context of that six million, and then you're like... Oh, because we don't we don't emotionally connect with numbers in a broad sense. We connect with people. Right. So like when you're talking about someone calling out for their mama and everybody who is a mama who's had that responsibility, who identifies that way, is going to turn around and needs to step up. Um, that's the difference, right? You have that. You are now a part of a story as well. Right. <laughs> Therefore, <laughs> and I, th- I think it's also well, important I, when we choose to when, tell stories too. Well, when you look at, I mean, here's the thing. When I think about reading, I often also think about propaganda. What are the intentional triggers that people pull? And if you look at The Onion, I've been listening to Scott Dickers a lot, and it's really funny because when you look at the stuff that so he's just, doing... So The Onion, for anyone who isn't familiar with it, is a sort of satirical... It's a parody news- of a newspaper. Paper, yeah. And so what they do is they'll do these things like Area Man, you know, 
disappoint, you know, area, like, what is it? Uh, alcoholic dad disappointed in dope head son, right? <laughs> so it's like, or area man, you know, forgets to mow lawn, right? It's this thing where it's like, there are all of the shapes of what you know. And he talks about like verisimilitude with the intention of being funny. So you have to be accurate to a certain amount. So then if you're someone who's intentionally trying to convince people that um, caring for others is against, it's violating their constitutional rights, (laughs) what you need to do is put it in a context that looks familiar, has those pieces Mm -hmm. that are what you would normally associate with a valid news outlet right right? and so then but like so then you're like well this this all looks right so then as a reader it does become more and more important that we start looking at how we consume well and the logic so that just Mm -hmm. because somebody says you know number one this number two this uh doesn't mean they haven't actually skipped 10 steps yes lists are not facts (laughs) Right. So, so thinking critically, reading deeply, not like, like owning and occupying your own experience, but not necessarily thinking that it is a stand in or somehow. Well, here's the thing. Right. And this goes to confirmation bias. Right. So if what you already believe is one thing and you look at something and it seems to reinforce what you already believe, it's not, you're not going to be tempted to double check your sources, right? right? This makes sense to me. This, you know, great. That's what I think already. And this is what this thing is saying. It's being able to say, even though I agree with that, is this even accurate? Right. 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 So I think that was one thing about reading and that what's happening is because, it's a kind of hypnosis. Reading is a kind of wilf, willing hypnosis on the part of the reader. Well, and one of the responsibilities of the writer mm-hmm. actually is to bring up those counterpoints, to actually mm-hmm. bring up what might be um, mistakes in the logic or assumptions or, you know, that that is part of the responsibility of the writer is to unearth their own biases, their own, you know, if you're tempted to skip a point to pull it out and this happens completely happens in fiction too. Right. So, Mm -hmm. so you and I will often have a a conversation about some element of a story I'm working on and you will bring something up and I don't want to think about that something because it derails what I'm doing that works for me if I just shove that away. Right. And, um, and I know that's super pleasant for you when (laughs) when I react that way, but in fact, you know, those things have to be addressed. And usually there's a rich opportunity Absolutely. when you actually go, okay, okay, let me step back and look at the piece I don't understand or the piece I don't, I want to brush under the rug or the piece I don't want to deal with mm-hmm. again in fiction or in nonfiction and what's really there for me. Because the exciting thing about essay writing is that discovering something new. Right. I think mm-hmm. the most exciting essayists are not rehearsing the things they already think for an audience that already agrees with them, blah, 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 blah. Or even trying to convince an audience 
that doesn't agree with them, although I think that starts to push you deeper. But to actually discover something in the process, new yourself, right? So there's like thesis, antithesis, and then synthesis. And what is the synthesis? And sometimes you're not going to get to the synthesis until you hit the places where you can't get your thesis. Right. And, and then I have to say one together. other thing, because yeah. like, I'm sitting here and I'm like, yes, yes, wait a minute. Because the one thing I also, this is, and then this is just, I'm having an emotional it's reaction. It's good, right? This is I'm what we're trying to do here. I'm just having an emotional here. reaction. Yeah. But the notion that there's a thesis antithesis part absolutely makes sense in, you know, mm. so many contexts. Except when I start thinking about how human rights have been pushed into a almost theoretical framework in the context of our country at this moment. So it's not thesis antithesis to say everyone has the right to be safe. Well, I mean, part of right? one of the things that's happening, and this is interesting because there was the whole controversy with the New York Times where they published this sort of where they didn't read Heinous, the thing they printed, yeah, uh, opinion piece. But and 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 there was a really smart uh, op-ed talking about what's happened in newspapers that try to be balanced or try mm -hmm. to present like different sides. Is that you know the the current presidential administration has pushed things so far out of whack that in order to present their side, you have to present things that are illogical and, and not, true. Non, not yeah. true. And so then how do you do that if that's not your standard as a paper? So they're kind of in this little bind. Um, but anyway, so 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 sometimes it's, it's important when you set up your thesis antithesis and not to be super binary about everything, but when you set up your thesis and your antithesis, that you're setting up the terms of the debate, Absolutely. right? It's and so, frame. yeah, I mean, that was the Michael Che 2016 thing about like, okay, Black Lives Matter is a controversial statement, like matter. Like what, he's like, how much, like what can you drop down to below matter? Like Black Lives exist, right? right? So he says that whole thing. And it's like, so whatever you're setting up as your binary, as your thesis antithesis, like is going to, shape your whole argument that's going to shape the frame and so it can't be like you know yes human rights yes or no right like so as a, <laughs> yeah so as a reader before you go too deeply you need to kind of ask yourself what is the frame of this conversation because it may be and, and this is the thing you know george lakoff talks about this the, the creation of the frame is the you know so we when you accept the frame then you accept these other crazy terms. So if the frame is what we've come to at this point, it normalizes the absolutely insane. Mm -hmm. So you have to look at the frame whenever you're looking at something like an op-ed piece, like some, you know, something where they're saying this crazy thing is true. Even if you're like, yes, I believe that crazy thing, but let me stop for a second. What's the frame? Yeah. What are they literally saying? And, you know, sometimes it's hard to pull that out. But as a reader and as a consumer of media, it's really your responsibility. And I have to say, like, I, I want to put this uh, into our show notes. Samantha B had a correspondent, I think I've talked to you about this, who is British. And so she had done these different things. And one of them was to go to Finland and look at how Finland deals with fake news, because not surprisingly, they are a country who has been a focus and a testing ground for Russian misinformation. Anyway, that was a really interesting segment. And so we'll post that in the show notes. People can look at the frame that is built into that segment as well. But I think it illustrates how 
important it is that we are able to better consume our own media. And how vital it is to teach our kids how to read. And, our, yes. and ourselves, not and just ourselves. not just how to read phonetically or otherwise, but how right? to really how to read. And so to wrap up, we've mentioned empathy and, and where that falls into this conversation. There's a masterclass with a guy who is a hostage negotiator, and his very first lesson is about empathy. And he really makes clear that empathy is not about sympathy. It's not about agreeing. It's not about supporting. It's about getting a radical understanding of the goals of the person who is holding the hostage. What are they really doing? And then trying to understand their own moral codes, their own values, and how what they're doing fits in or doesn't fit in with their own values. And so... When we talk about this and we talk about people who are maybe not on the same side of the aisle as we are, there are hideous things happening. But if we think it's only because there are inherently bad people who know they're bad people wanting to do <laughs> bad things, we're going to miss opportunities. So what do they actually think they're achieving by doing these things? And yes, there are hidden and embedded systems of privilege and oppression sure. that people are not going to be aware of their benefiting from or perpetuating, but they do have goals that they perceive as being Right yeah. and good. And if we don't know what that is, we're never going to figure out how to effectively, effectively intervene. intervene and, you know, get our country back from the hostage takers. Nice. How's that for a frame? <laughs> <laughs> it is time for Steal This. Amateur, Amateur. looters borrow. <laughs> Professional. <laughs> Professional poets steal. What have you come across in your wanderings, and however readings. close yeah. to home they were? <laughs> or not. That you could take and make your own. All right. So um, I wish I had this right in front of me, but Brandon Taylor is um, an editor and author who is teaching a class, and his class description, he's teaching a class this summer through the Center for Fiction in New York City, but virtually. And his description of the workshop talks deeply about consequences, about understanding the consequences of any given sort of action or situation and how by going deeply into the consequences, you're, you're really getting at the stakes at what matters. And um, I don't know, it was, it was a really powerful way for me to kind of think about things that I know are important um, about cause and effect and about, you know, um, and about kind of, I mean, yeah, I guess a lot of it's like the deep, the, the sort of deep thing of causality, but there was a way in which he was saying that this even small actions can have, you know, ongoing consequences, mm -hmm. right? And how and what that looks like. And I think, of course, right now that's very relevant. I mean, I suppose it always is, but in moments when we're caught up in massive change and historical story, um, 
you know, it's easier to see the, the ways that the elements of, of story play out in life. Um, but I, I have continued to think about that, that notion of consequences. And I'm excited to learn more about what he means by that. Um, but it, but in my own reading, I'm thinking about just even small consequences and how they resonate through a story mm-hmm. um, or a history. That just made me think of Laurie Moore, and I can't remember the title of the short story, where the narrator like drops a baby I don't know. right at the beginning of the story. Mm. Talk about consequences. Mm. <laughs> um, so and- this week for myself, um, I am really just trying to think about, it's funny, I was listening to Tony Robbins, and what does it mean to be successful or to be a failure? What are your, how do you get to your own underlying values? How do you separate out what you think from what you were raised with? And, you know, specifically feeling really down that I haven't done more with this time. Mm. Right. And the truth is, it's like, oh, what, what, what would be, what would success look like for me coming out of this? And really kind of just defining those terms for myself. And there's a lot of opportunity right now for things that really drive me to uh, move towards what would be successful for me. I'm very oriented towards um, community, other people. So really trying to think about what does it look like right now for me to be the person I want to be and um, trying to sort of define that and then live up to it, you know, for a week. (laughs) Awesome. And from Storymaker's show, we just want to let you know there's no controversy over here. Black Lives Matter. <laughs>